Welcome to That Stack of Books, another episode. I'm Steve Scher, Nancy Pearl, a room full of folks at the Brian Corner Cafe, and lots to talk about. Nancy has some new book announcements for October. Folks will tell us what they've been reading, get some suggestions from Nancy Pearl, and a conversation with Amy Stewart, the nonfiction writer of such books as The Drunken Botanist, has her first novel published, Girl Waits with Gun. But she is still tied closely to nonfiction, even in this fiction work. That's all coming up. By the way, if you enjoy our podcast, love to have you drop by Town Hall, October 18th, 6.30 p.m., just after the Seahawks game on Sunday. We're going to be there with Martha Brockenbrough, who writes about grammar, and Frida Clemens, who draws and writes puns. We'll have a conversation about language. Nancy Pearl, Katie Sewell, a room full of folks will be there. Hope you will be there, too. Love to see you there. Let's first head down to the Bryant Corner Cafe see what new books are coming out for October. It's that stack of books. It's Tuesday afternoon. We're at the Bryant Corner Cafe where it's half price cookie day and we're talking about books. I'm Nancy Pearl. I'm Steve Scher and I'm going to go around and get your all names as we go. You said you had some book news about October. October is a big, big book month. A lot of really, um, a varied collection of, of books is coming out in October, and I thought you might be interested in hearing some of these so you can get them on order at the library or the bookstore and um, see if anything sounds good to you. Mary Carr, whom I know you interviewed, Steve, many years ago when she wrote The Liars Club, has a, a book called... Um, uh, the Art of Memoir, which is based on the class that she teaches um, at Columbia, I believe. How does she answer the question about whether memoirs have to be truthful? <laughs> she, she, she believes that memoir, the art of memoir, has entered. This is its heyday. So however you're going to understand that, I think, is um, how you're going to... Uh, whether or not you'll, this will be a book that you will want to read and, and want to enjoy. You know, so many people are writing their memoirs now, whether for publication or for not. I think this would be a good book. Mary Carr believes in truthiness, as Stephen Colbert said, and that is a very postmodern concept for a writer, yes? Yes, especially if you're writing about your life. But I would argue that every memoir is fiction because you, we, we write our own, you know, we've created our own narratives about our lives and, and whether somebody else writing our life or our, our writing our own lives, they're going to they're gonna differ. So I, maybe truthiness goes along with memoir. Two big name authors have books uh, coming out in October. One is David Mitchell, um, has a new novel, a very slim novel called Slade House, which he uh, originally published in 280 tweets, you know, which are 140 characters each, last year, is now brought out. Um, uh, Margaret Atwood has a brand new novel coming out called The Heart Goes Last. I, I think it's, it's um, going to be much more like her uh, post-apocalyptic Books, although it starts in a very realistic place of a couple finding, um, moving into a new home. Um, a big book, a big book, which, which will be a wonderful book to give to, um, for, for gifts 
um, which we're coming up to, the gifting season, 100 years of the best American short stories, edited by one of the masters of short story writing, Laurie Moore. So don't miss that. It has um, uh, everybody from F. Scott Fitzgerald to the most modern contemporary of contemporary writers, Lauren Groff. And I'll just do one more, um, just because I'm interested in uh, the author. Um, Alexander Hemmen, who um, was in the United States visiting when the Bosnian War broke out in the 1990s, um, is the first, uh, the first United Nations writer. I mean, that is, he, he has a position as the writer for the United Nations. And he has written a book called Behind the Glass Wall, which is inside the UN, which I think will be extremely interesting. So those are just a few books coming out in October. What have you been reading? I have been reading the third book in a fantasy series for young adults, and it's called The Ironmonger Trilogy by Edward Carey. And it is one of the most um, original and oddest fantasies that owes nothing at all to Harry Potter. And I, I say that not as a criticism of the Harry Potter books, but more speaking to the point that Edward Carey in this trilogy, and the first one is called Heap House, really has done something incredibly um, imaginative and yet fully rooted in our world. That's great. You told us about this a few months ago, but you'd only read the first one. So all three have been have met your expectations. Yes. Yes. I'm very happy that the third one my the, the third one comes out in November. Um, but I, I got a copy and my big dilemma um, and we should all have dilemmas like this, I suppose. But my big dilemma was to read the first two again before I started the third or just plunge into the third one. And, and the advice I got <laughs> was to just plunge in, which I did. So we're going to talk about what other people have been reading too, right? Uh, I'm Daphne Durham, and I just finished a book called Descent by Tim Johnston. It's a riveting thriller, but it's uh, literary, so it, it's beautifully written, but it is a, a tough story. A family goes up into the Rocky Mountains, I believe, and they, um, the daughter is a runner, so she... She goes off for a run in the woods with her, um, in the mountains with her brother, and she ends up being abducted. And the story, Descent, is a, is, a, is a play on the idea that she is trying to make her way off the mountain, and her family is descending into this really tough uh, situation where they're, where they're not sure whether she's still alive or whether they should give up on her. And it, it just is an incredible story about family and, and um, fear and grief and holding on. It's... It's amazing. I read Descent, and I would totally agree with with um, with Daphne. It's really, it is very intense, and it's one of those books where where you would give anything, anything to turn to the last page because at certain points you want to know what happens. So reading it, you have to like sit on your hands, you know, just or sit on one hand and just use the other hand for turning the pages. I am Jennifer Collins Fredericks. And my summer, early fall reading is cookbook reading. And 
as I'm trying to use up what's in my garden and what's at the farms. And I love cookbooks that also have stories. So I read um, Marcus Samuelson's uh, cookbooks. I don't know if anybody knows him, but he was uh, born in Ethiopia, raised in Sweden, moved to France for cooking school, ended up in New York City, and um, just has just a myriad of influences and travels and family history. Then he went back to Ethiopia and married an Ethiopian woman. And so he has multiple cultures and stories. And so this latest book is um, Marcus Off-Duty. So it's what he cooks at home and what all the different people in his life have brought to him via food and via their cultures. And so those are just my fun reads where I can look at beautiful pictures and fantasize about if I could actually cook that and I could hear the stories and the people. And he just says a lot about, I think, what, um, how food is a gift from people to people and uh, what it means in terms of your family and your connections. And so it's kind of also, to me, a little bit of a spiritual read and it's a fun read and it's an interesting read. So I plug for cookbooks for summer reading. <laughs> well, then you will want to uh, get your hands early on Ruth Reichel's new book, which is called My Kitchen Year, 136 Recipes That Saved My Life. And this is, this is where she talks about how, um, what happened when Gourmet Magazine in 2009 abruptly shut down. And it's um, how she, the recipes that really kept her going. She's coming to town. Ruth Reichel, she'll be at the book larder sometime in the next month or so. So I'm Tom Bird, uh, and uh, I wasn't aware of the catastrophe of Gourmet Magazine closing down, but that's, that's good to know about. Uh, I've, been, I've been trying to fill in some of my uh, holes of knowledge of uh, contemporary authors, and uh, <clears throat> my knowledge is mostly holes. So I just finished reading... Uh, this House of Sky by uh, Ivan Doig. And, and the reasons for that, in addition to filling in the holes, is that uh, he died this year, and I've been reading a lot about his life. And we just returned from a trip to Montana. So I'd really gotten into uh, Montana and, and what it's like and its history and so forth. So I decided to read This House of Sky, and, and, and I liked it a lot. I thought it was very good. Um, and a, a one, it, it talked to me because it's about growing up in a small town, and that's my past as well. But he has the most amazing description of a snowstorm in there uh, in Montana that I've ever read. It really caught me uh, and, and brought me into this, uh, this snowstorm, and I felt like I was there and not going to make it through. So, so I think at his best, he's a, he's a very good writer. Do you want to keep reading, Doig? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, this was really a memoir. Uh, so I'm not sure if I want to go into his uh, a fiction or not. But, but I certainly enjoyed some of his writing. Hi, I'm Roz. And I just finished reading a book called We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, um, which my son who was visiting asked me if I'd read and he was reading it and his book club was going to be discussing it so I got it and read it and it's quite a story it's fiction but based on some real things it's about a family told from the perspective of a young girl as if it were her memoir of growing up with a chimp as a sister 
a chimpanzee, a chimpanzee. So she also had a human brother and parents and so forth. And her father was a psychologist. Quite a story. And it, she's telling it from the perspective of an adult and remembering what it was like and how this family is completely dysfunctional. It's quite funny in many places. Um, so it was a good read. I'm Bill Kitchen. Uh, I got this idea from Nancy, uh, one of her older, older recommendations, but uh, it's called Slow Horses, and it's by Mick Heron. Essentially, this is a kind of a thriller, mystery, comedy kind of book, and it's a fun read. It's a good airplane book. It's easy to read, or you read it late at night when you can only, you know, take so much. But um, essentially, M it's about MI5 uh, agents who have messed up and they go to a place called Slow House, S-L-O-U-G-H, but they're known in the vernacular by the rest of the people who are really true MI5 people as slow horses. It moves along, it's good character development, you do care about the characters, and um, better than I thought it was going to be by far, so I would recommend it. I'm Susie Lance, and a book that I enjoyed this summer was called Inside the O'Briens by Lisa Genova. She is a neuroscientist who wrote Still Alice, and this book is about Huntington's disease and the way it affects a very lovable, realistic family in Boston. I'm Molly Hoffman, and I'm rereading a book that I loved 10 years ago, which is Snow Falling on Cedars. I have a little outside uh, library, and somebody brought it, and I thought, oh, I love that. And I'd forgotten how complicated, how many ins and outs, and so many characters, and I'm loving it again. I am Sheila, and um, Nancy answered one of my questions. I want to read Marilyn Robinson's Lila. And it's the third in a trilogy. The first one is Home and Gilead. And I've been putting off starting Lila because I think I need to go back and read the first two before I read the third. Hi, I'm Carol. And um, this summer I read The Rosie uh, Project and um, really enjoyed it. I found myself laughing and smiling during this book, um, and now I'm reading the second one, The Rosy Effect, uh, and it's just, it's just fun. Don Tillman is a, a PhD in uh, genetics, and he does this questionnaire to find a wife. He has Asperger's. It's not really clear that he ha does have it, but he does have it, and um, he is always torn between logic and um, sensible ideas versus intuitive and feelings and he has no ability for the feelings so he's struggling with it he meets rosie and um and it's a it's a, very very much so and the second one uh, i guess i can say it they they get married and she gets pregnant and they move to new york um, from australia and um so the story continues but it's it's really fun and um i'd recommend it what did you learn from all those books? Well, first I want to speak to the Lila issue, the Marilyn Robinson. I absolutely think you should read Lila. I don't think you need to reread the first two. I think that if an author believes that you need to have the first couple of books or however many books in mind, they'll do a lot of backtracking and fill in for you. But I think really um, 
each one of those books is stands superbly uh, on its own. So I would encourage just diving in and just, you know, sort of falling into the arms of that beautiful prose that Marilyn Robinson writes. And there's a new novel out um, called Best Boy by Eli Gottlieb, which is about um, an adult, middle-aged man who has lived in a in a um, a community for uh, people who have been brain you know who have bra uh, brain injuries or people who are um, developmentally um, slower than can then can live comfortably in in the quote real world unquote. Um, and you you experience what through the reading of Eli Gottlieb's novel, you experience what life is like for this this man. And um, you know, usually when we're reading about the recent books about Asperger's or autism, um, have, are are more about there there been more about teenagers. You know, we've seen a lot of that in in um, YA literature. But this is a really sensitive book. It's different from the Rosie Project. Um, it's not funny. Um, it's it's a book that is um, it's you know it's honest, and he gets inside as best he can. This young man, not so young man, middle-aged man. Can I just comment on the fact that it seems like there's a lot of new books that you're interested in? So you are well past whatever funk you were in. <laughs> Knock on, knock on wood. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I hate being in that, in that place. A wonderful collection of short stories, uh, by an author who is you. I, I just cannot. She's just fabulous, Joy Williams, and she has a collection, a big, thick collection called The Visiting Privilege: New and Collected Stories, and her stories are odd. They're disturbing. They're funny, but she can, she can really. She can just turn a phrase better than almost anyone except maybe Lori Moore. So I read an interesting book uh, by Amy Stewart, who usually writes nonfiction. She wrote uh, Wicked Plants and uh, The Drunken Botanist. She wrote her first novel, Girl Waits with Gun. And it's um, a story of the turn of the century. These three women who are living alone get harassed by a boor and they stand up for themselves and, and fight back. It's a great story about liberation and, in the, and asserting yourself in the, in the early 20th century. And that's Boer, B-O-O-R, not a mispronunciation of B-O-A-R. Yes, it's, well, you know, he was a bit of a boar, too. <laughs> that was part of his problem. Thank you all. It's that stack of books. I'm Steve Scher. Amy Stewart has written six nonfiction books about the perils and pleasures of the natural world. I believe that's how she put it on her website. And now a novel about the perils and pleasures of being a woman. Girl waits with gun. That's actually exactly what this book is about. You know, these three women living on their own in a farm in New Jersey, they find themselves under attack and they have to fight back at a time when women, you know, really weren't even, we didn't even really have full personhood. We didn't have full civil rights. I found this book scary for that reason. It was fun, it was funny, but that it really was a little scary to think about how limited their options were. 
Yeah, and you know, I think about that a lot. You know, it's, it was only 100 years ago, but we didn't have the vote. We couldn't um, do a lot of like banking and sort of business transactions. You know, and, and that's pretty recent. I'm sure a lot of your listeners will remember that in the 60s and even as recently as into the 70s, women couldn't get a credit card or a bank loan in their own name. You know, it was like, all right, Mrs. So-and-so, this looks fine. And as soon as your husband comes in to sign the papers, we'll, we'll do it. So, uh, and um, women were in real peril in a lot of other very strange ways, um, very much at risk of being institutionalized. There's one little mention in there of a girl who did something her mother didn't approve of, and she was sent away to the home for wayward girls until she was 21, four years, in an institution with no due process. So, yeah, we really were quite a ways away from being fully in the world in a civic manner. And yet these women were having to deal with somebody who was attacking them and try to get justice. I mean, I think about when we call our, I, I, I'm a feminist. I embrace that. I think a lot of people do. It's, it's, um, it's important to see the historical context where ideas like feminism come from. And I, that's, I guess I really appreciated that. Yeah, uh, well, you know, I, it's easy to forget that a hundred years ago, we were just coming out of an era where women really were the legal property of some man or another. We were either the legal property of our fathers or our husbands or a brother or an uncle. You know, um, as late as well into sort of the end of the 1800s, uh, if a woman inherited her husband's business, like let's say he ran a newspaper or a grocery store, something like that, she couldn't take ownership of it and run it. She had, there had to be a man who owned it. The reason we couldn't own property is because we were property, and property can't own another property. So all of that is just coming to, is we're just sort of coming out of that in the 1910s, but we still had so far to go. Were these issues that you thought about in deciding, I'm going to write this story, or did the story arise and then the issues of of class and, just to, and the way women were treated, did they just start percolating up as you did the research? Yeah, well, you know, the story kind of found me. I mean, I stumbled across a newspaper article from 1915 when I was looking for something else related to my last book, um, The Drunken Botanist. So I just stumbled... When, when you were sobering up from your last book, so The Drunken Botanist. When I was sobering up, right. So it was just one of those things that happens to writers all the time. You know, you're looking for one thing, you find something else, you go, well, that's interesting, and maybe toss it in a folder for future use, right? But I got really sucked into it. And so I'm sure the reason why I got sucked into it was that I was so interested in the time period and the idea of a story about three women kind of facing the world on their own and also three sisters who, as adults, were acting together. It's easy to read a story about siblings when they're young, but you don't read a lot about siblings as adults trying to do something together, and that's what they were doing. Don't you have a sibling? Was it, is, it, is it a new thing for you? I mean, to, to think about how siblings act as adults? I do have a sibling. I have a brother. But, you know, our lives are very different. I mean, he's down in L.A. doing his thing, living his life. We don't work together all day every day. I'm sure 100 years ago it was much more common for siblings to um, live under the same roof or work at the same business together or have to cooperate on a day-to-day -day basis. But certainly for... Uh, for me today, and I think for a lot of us, our siblings are across the country doing their own thing. What was the article that you came across that uh, was about Constance Cobb? So it was in the New York Times, 1915, 
It was actually it's, it, it was actually the story of the end of the book. It was actually the the case against Henry Kaufman, but that one article told the the entire story. Um, Henry Kaufman's this wealthy silk factory owner. He runs his automobile into a horse and buggy. These three sisters are driving. All they want is to get paid repaid for the damages to their buggy. He refuses. Conflict escalates until pretty soon they're getting shots fired at their house and bricks thrown through the window and kidnapping threats. And it just turns into this crazy conflict and they're under siege for a year because of this guy. But the but the interesting thing in real life and in your story is that the three of them, but Constance Cobb, does not, she takes matters into her own hands. She is a strong and willful person. She's very strong and very willful. In real life, she was um, about six feet tall, weighed 180 pounds. She was a force, this woman. And she was very angry. You know, one thing I've realized only very recently, somebody asked me the other day why it was that she was more angry and not so scared. And of course, it's my novel. I get to decide how scared or angry she is. But the whole time I was writing this book, I had a situation in my own neighborhood right across the street from me was a a meth house so there were drug deals and kids with guns literally across the street I never once made the connection as I was writing the book but I'm looking down from my office window I had a video camera trained on them we're sharing information with the police and it was mostly women on my street who were there was a 70 some odd year old woman who just had a stroke and she'd come running out in the street every time there was a drug deal and write down license plate numbers right in front of these guys and we kept saying I don't think you ought to be doing this. You're going to get hurt. And she just said, I'm fed up. I'm, I'm mad at them. I'm not going to let them do this to us anymore. And now I think maybe a part of the reason Constance was more mad than scared is that's how I felt. I just thought, how dare you come in here and ruin my neighborhood? I, I worked for this house. I'm not going to let you mess up this neighborhood. It never occurred to me to really... I was only scared as a practical matter. There were times when I couldn't walk out my front door. I'd have to text my husband and say... There's a drug deal happening outside. I'll I'll come get you in a minute, but I can't leave right now. But I was more outraged than anything else, and Constance is definitely outraged. Tell me something. Uh, Is that meth house still there? Did you guys have any success in getting rid of it? We had great success. The police took all our evidence, and they busted them up, and they called the landlord in for a very serious sit-down. And uh, those, those kids, unfortunately, are somewhere else in the city causing problems for somebody else, but they're not across the street from me anymore. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe they got a clue. But yeah. there, look, so Constance inspired you. Did yeah. you, is she, was she, are you writing her to be an inspiration? She, she is an inspiration, and it's so funny that you say that. I have a friend who read this book in galley form over the summer on a camping trip. She was out with her husband, and he had gone off for the day to fish or something. She's back at the campsite. And they, when they camp, they have a gun with them. She's not really a gun person, but they do have one that they take. And some, some weird, scary guy came by the campsite while she was alone. She got kind of nervous. She got in the truck. She's reading my book. And she's got the gun sitting there in case he comes back. And she said, I realized I was the girl with the gun. But she sort of decided how to handle the situation because of the book she had in her hand. She's just, I'm going to lock myself up, but I'm going to have it here, and I'm just going to wait. Girl waits with gun. Yeah. (laughs) Weird. Weird. All right, so I have a a little, I have a picky question for you. This is, you you have been a nonfiction writer. This is a fiction book, but it is grounded in nonfiction. So 
were you afraid to cut the tether? Yes. It's tricky. It's very hard. It's harder to make stuff up. You know, in some ways it's easier. For instance, I killed off their mother. And that was, <laughs> I'm sorry, Mrs. Cop. Four women under one roof. I just, I, I didn't know how to write those four women. <laughs> Three I could do. She didn't actually die for a few more years. I just sent her to a little bit of an early grave. So that kind of thing is easy. But there are times when they'll just be walking down the street and I'll think, what's going on on that street? How am I, I don't know, how am I gonna find out? And I go to the, I go to the truth. I, I open up the newspaper from that day 100 years ago and I look to see what was going on on the streets that day. I look for pictures, maybe not of that street, but of some street to what's the lettering in a store window like I you know I go to the reality to try to fill out their life honestly I thought that was great I really enjoyed that Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed the headlines and the fact that you were pulling headlines but I also your descriptions of the barn your descriptions of the gas lights that I saw oh here's the here's the nonfiction writer researcher doing the work to paint the picture of this uh, or the dye factories now what did you think when you started writing about the silk dye factories Yeah, I got really sucked into the history of the Patterson silk strikes. It was a fascinating moment in the history of the American labor movement. You know, tens of thousands of workers out on strike. And these factories were pretty rough places to work. And fortunately, it's very well documented because the Patterson silk strikes were so famous. It was the IWW, you know, the Wobblies. And so Jack Reed was there and Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was there. Margaret Sanger was there. So I had pictures and I had a lot of firsthand accounts. People have gone back and done um, first-person interviews with people who remember it, so that's all very well documented and archived. You talk about two families that you did interview. Well, I, I interviewed some cops, and they're in here under, under not that name, but under the name Virgil and Odell, but they are the descendants. So who I tracked down was these three sisters, Constance, Norman, and Florette. They had a brother named Francis, and I talked to Francis's grandson. So he had a lot of family stories. But the more amazing thing was that I tracked down Florette's son. So Florette was the youngest by a long shot, and she had children late in life. So her son is 80-some-odd years old and living in New Jersey. He not only remembers his mother very well, but he remembers his Aunt Norma from when he was a little boy and she was an old woman. So they had stories to tell to flesh out a little bit the people. But how did they feel about the people becoming the characters? You know what? I was really worried about that. I thought about how I would feel if somebody called me up and said they were going to write about my great-grandmother, a complete stranger. And um, I, 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 I wanted to manage their expectations. So I told them that I love these women, and that's why I'm telling their story, because I love it so much. So I'm not going to turn them into serial killers. You know, I'm going to be true to who they were, but that they are going to have to change. Bad things are going to have to happen to them. They're going to have to make mistakes. And that ultimately more people are going to be involved than just me. I'll have an editor. I'll have a whole team of people at a publishing house. You know, there's talk now of a TV deal. If that happens, then a whole lot more people get involved. And I can't control all of that. But they've been so great. They were really happy to have their genealogy. I gave them their whole family tree I, because I was throwing resources at this. I was hiring genealogists. I was paying for stuff. So I assembled, I had their great-grandparents' marriage license with signatures on it. Incredible stuff. 
So they were glad to have that, and they've been so generous with me sharing stories and photos and stuff like that. You are the researcher. That's what you like to do. How come? How come you you said before it's harder to make stuff up? Yeah. You Really? Because <laughs> you're making a lot of stuff up here. No, it's a total treasure hunt. I mean, I love diving back into the past. Uh, you can uncover some astonishing things. There's nothing makes me happier than going through boxes of dusty old papers and photographs and trying to put it all back together and find yeah. out what it meant. I get, I get that. I mean, that's what you do with that's what you do with the books about bugs and and gardens and, and the like. Did I understand that you you have a, a cocktail that you're serving yeah. with this? Is that true? Yes. Because with the drunken botanist, you you would serve a cocktail when you went to readings. Are you? Right. What are you serving? Yeah, and people show up. If you say there's going to be drinks, they come. So the, the drink, I wanted something from the period, and I found a drink from the 1910s called the Automobile. And it's equal parts gin, sweet vermouth, and scotch. It's horrible. Yeah. You don't, <laughs> It's a nightmare. You don't ever want to drink it. But I, I replaced the scotch with Applejack, which is a New Jersey spirit. And I added a spoonful of jam, which is very trendy in cocktails right now. Well, they weren't doing it 100 years ago, but they had jam. So it's, you know, it's, it's authentic to the time period. And then topped off with champagne, which makes it fizzy oh. and fun. Oh. So that's the New Jersey automobile. Yeah, you have yeah. to name it something. Right, right. Now, um, you said TV deal. I don't think I'm giving anything away to say that at the end of this book, and I, I guess you said this in an interview too, Constance Cop, she's coming back. You fell in love with her that much, or she just seems to offer you that much uh, storyline? There's so much more to tell about them. I have 15 years of their lives <laughs> reconstructed. But not as, 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 uh, as uh, eventful as this, is it? Oh, m- more so. You're not going to believe what else happens. Yeah, I have a three-book deal, so I'm definitely doing three. And assuming my publisher has the stamina, I'll keep going for you know a few more after that for sure. No, this car accident completely changed their lives. Most of the time, people's lives are only changed by a single event in the movies. You know, in real life, our lives sort of plot along the way they go, and not too much changes. But they went in a completely different direction because of this. So, yeah, more to come. But a positive direction, a direction that mirrors the, yes. the way women moved through the early part of the 20th century. They, uh, they went on to do some very groundbreaking things and to have some fun. Um, the most hilarious newspaper headlines are yet to come from the Cop Sisters. Wow. Yeah. All right. Um, Sheriff Heath, real person? Yes. And, and it, you did, it said you talked to the Heath family. Is that right? I talked to a distant branch of the Heath family. One of the weirdest things to happen since the book has been out is that I'm now starting to connect with people. So several nights ago, I was in Brooklyn. I was talking about how I never could track down Robert Heath's direct descendants. That night, I got home and there was an email from somebody who said, I met Sheriff Heath when I was young. I'm best friends with his grandsons. I can put you in touch with his great-grandsons right now. So here it go. Here it comes. Yeah. More. Yeah. yeah. Was, he, was there some typicality to him as a man in the 20s? He was polite. He was respectful. He believed in the law. I mean, a lot of times the other characters in the book have some more venality, not just as a construction, but in your research. Did you find there were a lot of people of that kind of rectitude? Well, the thing that made Sheriff Heath different, I think, is he was a real reformer. He was very progressive. I have the transcripts of speeches that he gave, um, where word-for-word transcriptions of his extemporaneous speeches about... Um, prison reform 
and wanting to get at the root causes of poverty and crime, wanting to treat prisoners a little differently, like giving them medical care. He held church services in the jail, which no one had ever done. So he was a really good guy and a crusader, and he took a lot of flack for it. He was criticized constantly in the papers. So I think he actually felt a little bit alone in his position. He saw something in Constance that was remarkable, that let him trust her to go out and basically do a man's work. You know, he issued her a gun, they went out and they tried to catch the guy, they worked together. That is crazy unusual at that time. At the same time, you see him interacting with his wife, and this part is fiction, but I think it's true to type. He still expects his wife to toe the line, stay at home, look after the kids. Sometimes it's not always the greatest thing in the world to be married to the big progressive guy with his big ideals. And so there's a little bit of a downside to, to him in that way. But overall, I think he was an amazing man. I really do. And, um, and, and he's really the hero in this book. You must have been working on this book and the way your mind works. You must have said, oh, my God, I just have laid out my, the next 10 years of my writing life. <laughs> because there's so many options. But it's exciting to you, it's not daunting to you. Well, it is a little daunting, but the only reason it's daunting is that I, I, I'm worried about burning out. I really want to tell this whole story. It's a story that has a beginning and a middle and an end and would take several novels to tell. And I want to get to the end. So I'm just, you know, fingers crossed that I don't start to hate it. <laughs> that it doesn't start to be a burden. You know, you think about these great TV shows we love so much that we don't want to ever end, and they end them after six or seven seasons. And it's good that they did, because it, you know, they never went overboard, they never got tired of it. And so I hope I, hope I get there with the Cop Sisters. Amy Stewart, thank you. <laughs> thank you. We're going to be back at the Bryant Corner Cafe on Tuesday, October 13th. We start taping around 2 o'clock. Why don't you join us? Bring some of the books you like to talk about and hear what books we're talking about. Like to see you there. Bryant Corner Cafe is at 65th and 32nd Northeast neighborhood of Ravenna, Bryant in Seattle. And don't forget, Town Hall, October 18th, 6.30. We'll play some games and we'll, uh, we'll share some puns. If they make you groan, well, the pun has done what was intended. Nancy Pearl, Katie Sewell, all the folks who make our stay at the Bryant Corner Cafe so much fun. Thank you for listening. We hope to see you at Town Hall October 18th. Hope to see you at the Bryant Corner Cafe October 13th. And hope to see you peering over the pages of some great book. Take care. <laughs>